the world criminal has done a lot of massacre. People get shot in the village without any explanation. You remember Adolf, our West Papuan friend from the previous episode. There's much more we want to share about what's happening there and more stories to tell. Today, there are more soldiers than ever in West Papua. The Indonesian state is using force to dramatically expand extraction in mining, logging, plantations, pushing more people off their land. Resistance is also increasing in both the regional areas and the cities. It's a new and dangerous phase, and Australia's government is complicit, diplomatically and militarily. This complicity includes training Indonesian soldiers and selling, even giving away, weapons used on West Papuan civilians. But there's also a decades-long West Papua solidarity movement in this country. Wage Peace is proud to be part of this. And today, we want to share a little of where that solidarity comes from. My name's Izzy Brown. Um, I'm from a band called Combat Wombat. And I'm living here in Nam, Melbourne, Victoria. So Combat Wombat is a political hip-hop band. We've been around for about 22, 23 years now. I would like to do a lot of social commentary, I guess, on the political situation. Um, Everything from the environment movement to more social issues, the war machine. Yeah, we've got a lot to say. From a very young age, I guess when I was 16, I started going to forest blockades and saw the power of direct action and the way people, even a small group of people, could make a really big difference when it comes to standing up for the land, for the trees, for the environment. And this kind of action, direct action, inspired a lot of my music. And I think I wrote my first hip-hop track, my first rap, when I was in prison after blockading at the... Uh, Eden Woodchip Mill. And um, so from there, I guess I found hip hop was a great vehicle to express what I felt, you know, about what was going on and about what I was witnessing firsthand. And so I kind of made it my mission to yeah, build a sound system that ran on solar power and I uh, used my voice to give critique of society and you know what I was witnessing and what I was seeing on a daily basis. That included supporting First Nations justice, like the Tent Embassy, which was established outside the Australian Parliament over 50 years ago and has been going ever since. Uncle Kevin Buzzacott has campaigned at the Tent Embassy and around the country for many decades. It was through working with Uncle Kevin Buzzacott um, at the Tent Embassy that we met Kaka Jacob, Kaka Jacob Rumbiak. He was a prisoner, um, political prisoner um, from West Papua who was now in exile in Australia. He met with Uncle Kevin and the real conversation actually I remember happened in a squat in Carlton and Uncle Kev for some reason was staying at this squat in a back shed and it was very dark and there was a little fire happening and Kaka Jacob came in and 
in the dark we heard about how he'd been in a police cell in a prison cell in which he couldn't stand up with Shanana Guzmao of all people and how they'd lived on eating rats and he'd been in prison for I think 11 years he had been a gorilla in the jungle, um, fighting in West Papua, and then, and also a student activist, and had managed to flee. Yeah, he talked a lot about life in the jungle and the struggle there and the armed resistance, and I guess it really captured our hearts and minds about an issue that was so close to us, but so rarely talked about. West Papua is one of our closest neighbours. But what exactly is Australia's role in the conflict? It's far more than just diplomatic support for Indonesia, although there's plenty of that. Australia signed the Lombok Treaty, a joint security agreement in 2006. One of the Lombok Treaty clauses directly seeks to suppress support in this country for West Papuan independence. Australian military and federal police also train Indonesian special forces, Kupasus and Brimob, who routinely shoot civilians in West Papua. And Australia sells, or even donates, guns, missiles and weaponised vehicles used in the Territory. Those are some of the things behind Izzy's conversation by the fire. And I remember the impact of the stories he told and how that especially affected Uncle Kev and the revelation that he had and about the connection of Aboriginal people and the struggle that was happening in West Papua. And it was very humble beginnings of something, a relationship that really did turn into quite an epic, epic adventure. We saw all these connections. Some of them were the Dreamtime stories, some of them the way the Artesian Basin is connected to West Papua and that how the land used to be connected and that water is still connected and how those stories of the animals, you know, cross over both continents and how those people are connected from really ancient, ancient times. And the shared struggle, the shared struggle of colonisation, the shared struggle of repression and you know loss of language and one of the things I remember Uncle Kev and Uncle Larry too at the time saying you know you're only 50 years in we've got 200 years of this and we've lost so much already we don't want to see that happen to you you're our brothers and sisters and we need to help fight for you. Uncle Kev was like, Izzy, you know, you got to find find me a boat. we got to go there. we got to get the Black Army together and we got to go to West Papua and support our brothers and sisters there in the struggle because they're our people. They're our people too. So that was quite a big request and I didn't know anything about boats. <laughs> but uh, we had just received a payout from the South Australian government, the South Australian police, from an action that had happened at Beverly Uranium Mine in 2000. And 
The police had pepper sprayed us and brutalised us, locked us in a shipping container that had possibly contained uranium, um, and we'd done a class action. And that came through 11 years later, just in time, for Uncle Kevin's request um, for a boat. <laughs> and so I spent my share of the police money um, on a yacht called Pogmahone, which is Kiss My Ass, which I thought was an appropriate name for such an adventure. And then it was a crash course, a steep learning curve in boating from there on in. A lot of yachties we talked to were like, hell no, Indonesia will confiscate our boats. Are you crazy? What are you guys doing? But still, we persisted. Uh, I managed to find a captain who had sailed through that area before and was willing to captain my boat. And my friends bought a boat off eBay. They bid on a boat for three grand and they got it. It was made of fiberglass and looked a bit like a submarine. And they had also never sailed before and learnt on the way. Um, so they sailed up from Brisbane and we sailed up from Noosa and it was a real crash course in how to sail and, you know, a lot of elements that we hadn't perhaps considered before, <laughs> like trying to work out how to fix boats on, from YouTube videos <laughs> along the way. It was, you know, some people said it was crazy, dangerous, whatever, but you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm always up for an adventure and probably my ignorance to things helped <laughs> with my enthusiasm. <laughs> and so, yeah, we, we, we pushed on to make that happen. Uncle Kevin really wanted to connect the two cultures through the water and the ashes. And the journey started at Lake Air Camp and we went to the Mound Springs with a group of West Papuan activists and collected the water from the mound springs. That water takes millions of years to arrive in those springs, but that water originally comes from the mountains in Papua. So when it rains in Papua, the water sinks down and through, uh, after a million year journey, through rock and sand and into the artesian basin, it, yeah, it arrives in the mound springs in the desert. And so for Uncle Kev and Kaka Jacob, this was a really important symbol of showing how through like ancient times the lands were, were joined and that connection is still there. Just quickly for our international listeners, Lake Eyre, originally called Katitanda, is an enormous lake in the desert of Central Australia on Arabuna country, Uncle Kev's country. Mostly it's a dry salt pan but every now and then it floods and it's spectacular. Also, the ashes that Izzy mentioned are from the fire at the Aboriginal tent embassy, also a powerful symbol. Now the mound spring we went to, it's like a little hill with a pool of water in the middle. And that pool has no base, it's like liquid sand. The earth is pushing that 
ancient water up through the ground and it's bubbling. It's also called the bubbler. And apparently before the mining company uh, began extracting water, you could throw like a sleeper from a train track into it and the water pressure would push that sleeper back out. Now, due to the extraction of over 40 million litres of water a day, uh, you don't get that kind of pressure, but it still bubbles and it is still a really unique and amazing ecosystem that holds plant species that aren't found anywhere else in the world. The ceremony to collect the ancient water from the mound springs was really beautiful. It was very windy and wild and the flags were flying high. We had a West Papuan flag, a Maluku flag, Aboriginal flag, Torres Strait flags, all bright colours, flapping in the wind, you know, with the stark desert background. And so a group of maybe 30 or 40 of us gathered at at the Mound Springs and the West Papuans in traditional clothes and paint um, collected the water with Uncle Kevin and we took it back to the lake where our camp was and that night had a concert under the full moon with uh, everyone doing you know, their traditional music as well as some more experimental um, avant-garde <laughs> freestyling moments. Yeah, a special time. We had um, three boats leaving from Cairns and heading north to the Torres Strait. Cairns, original name Gimui, is a town in Queensland on the northeast coast on Yidinji and Irkandji country. To the north are the islands of the Torres Strait, or Zenath Kiss, and from there it's an island hop to the coast of Papua. Travelling over land and sea from Lake Eyre to West Papua is nothing short of epic. I guess the controversy of it, mixed with that spiritual element, made it a very powerful and very kind of special journey. Two yachts set sail today with about 30 crew members on board. They've been warned that if they enter West Papua waters, they'll be intercepted by Indonesian naval vessels. But the activists say they're highlighting the abuses that West Papuans endure under Indonesian rule. And a lot of amazing things happened along the way, a lot of coincidences, a lot of... Um, okay, up past Cooktown, we had an incident where the little boat, um, Trudy, that had been bought off eBay and had um, the DIY sailors on board, uh, the engine blew up. And mid-hectic wind and storm... Uh, we had to do a boat rescue and tow them all the way to Thursday Island, which was quite epic. Um, they were taking water, the engine was smoking. Um, luckily, uh, one of the bigger boats was there to be able to tow them and crew from our boat were able to like pull them in. And yeah, so it was Escape River. We were just on the edge of Escape River and it really was a fitting name for a very close call. Um, it was very hard with boats as well to be able to manage the media. 
they're always like, when are you getting to here? When are you getting to there? What are you doing? What's your timing? And I really learned the hard way that with boats and with weather, timing is so unpredictable. And there were so many times when we did have like an interview or um, the media arranged or a launch, you know, advertised and we physically could not get there because there was no wind or we're out of fuel or the, you know, every day we had to reassess our situation. We never knew what was going to happen next or how it was going to go or if we were going to make it. And somehow against numerous odds, you know, a lot actually prevailed. They made it to Thursday Island or Waibene, halfway between Australia and the island of New Guinea. Oh, <laughs> it all went to shit at Thursday Island, but I don't know if I need to talk about it. It's traumatising. <laughs> we lost everyone to the pub, everyone's boats were broken, everyone was fighting, people were leaving. It was like, it was like absolute shit show. Anyway, don't put that in there. <laughs> this is the Australian government's final warning. As I understand, flotilla members do not have the correct visas or permits for entry into Indonesia. Further, I must warn you, given the political nature of your group's objectives, there could be additional charges of serious offences under the Indonesian Criminal Code relating to crimes against the security of the state. These offences attract significant prison terms, including up to 20 years imprisonment. The Australian government was well unimpressed. Um, so from Thursday Island, we were approached by members of the government telling us we weren't allowed to go any further. Um, if we did, we would be arrested or um, the Indonesian government had every right to arrest us. Julie Bishop at the time in the media said the Indonesian government had every right to bomb our boats. Julie Bishop was the opposition foreign affairs spokesperson at the time. She became the foreign minister after her right-wing coalition won government in 2013. The foreign minister at the time, Bob Carr, said flotilla members wouldn't get any consular support if they hit problems with Indonesian authorities. We want you to understand that the ability of the Australian government to assist in such circumstances is limited. Meraki is a long way away from consular assistance and we're keen to avoid a long-term consular case at the expense of Australian taxpayers' dollars. And we urge you to reconsider your plan. They were very nervous about ruffling their, the feathers of Indonesia. And then the PNG government was also, I guess, pressured to get on board as well. And they said they would be refusing us visas to land in PNG, which was originally one of our stops was Daru. So we announced that we were travelling on First Nation passports and we had visa stamps made by the Federated Republic of West Papua, um, which definitely ruffled a few feathers in Canberra and also in Jakarta. Meanwhile, numerous military ships had gathered on the Indonesian border to meet us or to block us from arriving. It was getting very sensitive and meanwhile, we we're all kind of in limbo on Thursday Island, different people having different ideas about what should happen next and how that should prevail. Uh, we had people um, that we'd been working with Australia already in Daru waiting for us, which made it difficult. They were then meeting up with people in West Papua and coming to meet us. 
Uh, contact was very hard. There was no, you know, phone range. We didn't know what was happening there. It was very hard to get the message through to be able to tell people that, you know, we were stuck on Thursday Island with broken boats. They were somewhere out in the water looking for us. It was a really tricky scenario. Um, we managed to get a message through on the satellite phone that some of the crew were waiting in the water near the border of PNG and Papua. We knew it was time to go. This was our only opportunity perhaps to meet people safely. They'd managed to sneak out and um, we couldn't leave them waiting for us. So I hired a helicopter and flew Uncle Kevin and Amos, a West Papuan activist, and Kaka Jacob and Margie and myself um, over to Boigu Island which is still considered Australian land, but is actually um, only three kilometres from PNG. And we just had to tell a big story about how we were on a cultural fishing trip and we were connecting desert Aboriginal people with, you know, Torres Strait and, you know, cultural exchange, blah, blah, blah. Somehow, with a lot of... <laughs> blagging <laughs> um we managed to find yeah a guy with a boat a kid that was willing to take us out and I actually door knocked people's houses to see if I could get a jerry can to get some fuel to fill the boat so that we could do the mission it was very touch and go and we also didn't actually know where we were going all we knew is that somewhere out in the water between Boigu um and the PNG West Papua border our friends were waiting for us so we had the passports, Aboriginal passports, the sacred water from Lake Eyre, the ashes and yeah, and all the crew. Um, we had a, a GPS tracker that was connected to our website in which you could see where the boat was travelling each day and people could follow you know, what we were up to. And we decided to use this as a decoy and send that off in the direction of Indonesia in a smaller boat whilst we met up with the West Papuan elders um, in a secret location. And we went out in a tinny. Poor Uncle Kev was getting really seasick and looking very green. It began to rain. The engine on the boat stopped. We just floated around in the middle of the ocean, not knowing where we were going or if we would ever find the people we were looking for or what was actually going to become of us <laughs> in any way. And all of a sudden, the sun came out and we saw a large tinny going across the water, not far from us. And on it was a group of West Papuans. And I think it was Amos was like, that's them, that's them, follow them. And... The engine started and the sun came out and we zoomed after them and we met between these two islands and the two boats got closer and closer together. And there was Ronnie, um, who'd been working with us in Australia and teeing up, you know, the, the stuff from the inside, and also one of the generals of the resistance and elders from the West Papuan community and um, leaders of the West Papuan struggle. And it was there in that moment on the water that we exchanged the, the ashes and the water and the passports 
and there was a ceremony and a connection happened that was so incredibly powerful and beautiful and brief. And then all of a sudden, you know, we heard other boat engines and the two boats drifted apart and someone threw a West Papuan flag in the air and it flew all the way over to the other boat as it caught the wind and someone grabbed it and then they just disappeared into the horizon. And I'll always remember that moment. It was very powerful, very magic. And it was, I guess, the epitome of, of the mission. sitting in the pub, drinking a beer, rang the media. <laughs> yep, we're on the boat, we've just made the exchange. Uh, we've delivered the thing and knowing that the other guys had already returned to West Papua and were safe and in hiding, we were able to release the footage of the exchange that happened. It was very emotional. It had taken a lot out of everybody, especially Uncle Kev. It was hard. I felt like, you know, I had I'd had a vision that we'd arrive with the boats in West Papua and, you know, the people there had already organised to do ceremonies and events for our arrival. And in a way I felt bad that that hadn't come into fruition. But in retrospect, it would have been impossible. And, you know, it took a while to really kind of comprehend what had happened and, you know, what, you know, and where to from, where to next from there. But I think we did manage to achieve what we set out to achieve and we certainly created an international incident and got a lot of media for the cause. Not in the way we'd envisioned it, but somehow against numerous odds we'd made that happen. You can find a whole lot more about the Freedom Flotilla in the links on the episode webpage, including the footage of that meeting on the water. But there are a few other parts to this story. We're only halfway through. So my partner Lobe Wengai was one of the people that came on the boat. I think he was asked to join because he'd grown up on boats. His dad was a fisherman and a boat builder and he knew the waters of that area. Yes, Izzy's partner is one of the guides for Adolf's canoe, escaping from West Papua to Australia in the previous episode. I met Lobert when we were organising the Freedom Flotilla. We were doing a fundraising gig at Bar 303 in Northgate and we met on the dance floor and the rest is history. Um, when he first lived here, he used to hunt possums in St Kilda on the Esplanade and he was very surprised to hear that I hadn't eaten possum where for him that seemed like the most obvious food source. He'd hit them with a rock or a stick and then take them back behind the church and cook them up on a fire. <laughs> he likes to talk to birds and is very superstitious. He can certainly see things and hear things that I cannot see or hear. It's a spirituality and a culture 
that you know, I'm still not privy to even after eight years of living together. I don't know if it's a mixture of lifestyle, culture, or perhaps trauma, but he, like many of the other older West Papuans, they like to walk. Sometimes they walk all night or all day. And you ask them, you know, what are you doing? Jalan Jalan is always the answer. Walking, walking. Sitting in the middle of concrete jungle. Oh, yeah. He does have a big connection with people that live on the street and beg on the street. Whenever we walk down Smith Street or in the city, you know, he knows and is connected with a lot of the Aboriginal mob, parkies, you know, people that I guess also spend a lot of time in the street walking around and hanging out. After the Freedom Flotilla, I had no idea, but I was actually pregnant with my son, Sambewa. Since Sambewa, there's been a few other additions. We have Nune and also Ampa. Their names are from the Surui language, which is a Western dialect from Lobe's hometown. Uh, Sambewa is like a ray of light. Nune is the earth and Ampa is the morning star. Sambewa is probably the most organized person in the family. He likes to be on time, but I think it's good to have someone like that in amidst our chaos because, yeah, there's certainly elements of island time, <laughs> Papuan time, and uh, other kind of chaos factors um, and spontaneous adventures entering into our lifestyle. So Sambao definitely keeps us in line. Nune is a dreamer. She likes to take a time, you know, likes to sit down, draw a picture when she should probably put, be putting on her shoes, um, start making something just about when it's time to go to school. <laughs> but a beautiful soul, always caring, always looking out for everyone, always checking in to see if you're all right. I think she's the only kid in the family that asks mum if you're okay. <laughs> so, yeah, big heart. A beautiful girl. Ampersonic is cheeky and cute as a button. She's only three, but she's very funny. You just got to look at her and she'll crack you up. She'll give you the evil side eyes or the, the cheeky grin, and you just know she's up to mischief. And my eldest son, Basie Brown, he is 18. Different father. It's a pretty wild household. You know, you've got, you know, toddlers to teenagers and then you've also got lots of Old West Papuan guys sitting around as well. So you've definitely got every generation covered in a very small space and uh, it's certainly not a quiet house. My father's certainly a larger-than-life kind of character, always has been. I suspect he thought he was James Bond in the 80s. There's a few photos of him wearing white suits and sunglasses. <laughs> he began his career in ASIO straight out of university. He was handpicked for his 
I guess, academia and photographic memory. For our international listeners, ASIO is Australia's national security service. Our version of the FBI in the US or MI5 in the UK. They used to call it the firm when I was a child. He works for the firm. Or if people asked, they'd say the public service. We moved every two years since I was born. So we didn't maintain long friendships or connections with people per se because we were always moving and re-establishing ourselves at different towns, different schools. So in that way, I guess people never really knew or you never had time to really think deeply about what it is exactly that he does. I think I was probably about 13, 12 or 13. I think when they told me and I left home not that long after Um, I remember as a teenager being convinced my my braces were bugged by ASIO (laughs) probably from that was it a dead Kennedy song I don't know (laughs) but uh, who knows anything's possible um I didn't maintain contact particularly, but he'd always appear in strange places. I'd be at the Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras on Oxford Street and there would be my dad sipping a latte in a cafe on <laughs> Oxford Street. Or I'd arrive in Canberra after being at a forest blockade and there he'd be in another cafe sipping a cappuccino. It was very surreal. He always just seemed to appear randomly and that did lead to my suspicion that my teeth were must have been bugged. It wasn't until many years later that I realised that while I was protesting East Timor, you know, he was heavily involved in East Timor. There was investigations going on. It wasn't until I saw him in Parliament <laughs> that I realised how deeply connected he was to the things I'd been protesting about. That was a parliamentary inquiry back in the early 2000s, based on leaks from Australian intelligence about East Timor. It's detailed. If you're curious, we've included some links on the episode page. Funnily enough, he seems strangely proud of what I do. He kind of pats me on the head. He said one thing that I still find quite disturbing and a little bit scary... You and me, were so alike. We're just trying to save the world in our own special ways. <laughs> I'm not quite sure how to take that. <laughs> so I guess you can convince yourself of anything. He likes to throw parties, themed parties. My mum even talked about back in Newtown when he was a student, he would throw Tolkien parties and he would be a wizard and they'd all take on characters like he likes dressing up. He's very eccentric. Um, One of the more curious parties that comes to mind was he decided to hold a Mad Hatter's tea party for his birthday um, at the Botanical Gardens Cafe. And he hired out the venue. 
and people came from all over the place. He assigned each attendee with a with a character. I think I was the Cheshire Cat. He was the Mad Hatter. There was a guy from the Malaysian Intelligence Unit that was um, Chairman Mao, the Dormouse. There was another guy who just flown in from Indonesia who deals with um, international hostage scenarios. Um, I can't quite remember what character he was. And then there was, you know, my brother and his partner and their extended family and and mine and my best friend from third grade. And, yeah, just a really curious collection of characters. We all had to read excerpts from Alice in Wonderland and eat small tea cakes, of which there definitely wasn't enough of. And he got up and read the whole of White Rabbit by Jefferson Airplane with enthusiasm. (laughs) Fascinating. I first found out how deeply connected my father's work was to the campaign in which I'm involved in with West Papua. Only last year, I was at my friend Zelda's house over the holidays and she was working on and researching the arms manufacturers that provide weapons to the Indonesian military. And sure enough, Talus, my father's company, was on the list. The research Izzy's talking about is for our website, War on West Papua. It tracks the companies that sell weapons to the Indonesian security forces that get used in West Papua. You can find it on the episode page. One of those companies is the multi-billion dollar French corporation Thales. Izzy's dad left his Australian government position and joined Thales' Australian operation almost 20 years ago. So he's very much part of the system that journalist and researcher Michelle Fay talked about in our earlier Revolving Door episode. Among other things, Thales makes the armoured Bushmaster vehicles. These have been sent to Ukraine with great publicity. Good marketing for Thales. They've also been used for years against civilians in West Papua, along with Thales missiles, naval guns and assorted bombs and rockets. We found all that out and I showed Izzy. The Bushmasters are made at Tales Bendigo factory on Jara country in central Victoria. She showed me the Bushmasters that they were sending to Indonesia. And it crossed my mind that his office is on the Bushmaster circuit. Next time I went to Bendigo, I thought I'd go take a look. And sure enough, row after row after row of these militarised vehicles were sitting there in plain sight, right there where his office was. The same vehicles that were being sent to Indonesia. That was confronting. It was mind-blowing. You know, you often imagine that these people with the power that do these bad things are these anonymous, untouchable people that you'd never perhaps happen to meet. 
but then you find out that sometimes they're closer than you think. And this one was <laughs> right there. <laughs> yeah. I've often questioned him about his line of work. I've drilled him about, you know, the human rights violations and the the issues that working for, you know, working in such a line of business you know, causes. His narrative seems to be that we only sell to the good guys. I was like, how can you be a good guy when you're driving a tank and holding a machine gun? I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I think when you're surrounded by people that tell you, you know, you're the boss and you're doing good and running the world and whatever, it's probably hard to <laughs> have a true perspective on how what you do and the decisions you make affect people on the ground. I don't know. You know, you never can tell what someone thinks when they've spent their whole life working out ways to make you think that they think you're okay and you should tell them everything. You know, that's his job. He was a spy. He was trained to make people feel relaxed and comfortable enough to give him information. But in doing so, what are his truths? Where does he really stand on an issue? Does he even know? You would know so many things, so many secrets, so much dirt on people, so much information that you're not allowed to tell anybody and all that is stored inside your head and how that affects or what is the persona that is true to yourself as opposed to the ones that you present to all the different people that you need to present to in different ways. Like he can sit around the fire at the tent embassy and talk about how racist the government is. He can come to a squat where I live and tell everyone he's an anarchist. Like, but is he? No. But what is he? Who is he really? Like, does he even remember? I just think it's really unfortunate and really sad and so strange just how close we are to things and to people that in a different context are so incredibly bad or have the power to make incredibly bad decisions that can affect so many people. But when you're sitting around a dinner table discussing art, history or music, to know what was happening in a village simultaneously to that. I don't know, the irony stays with me. I'm not sure. Um, I guess we live in a strange world and as you get older, <laughs> it gets stranger. <laughs> the more you know, <laughs> the more you find out, the weirder it is. He's a doting grandfather, you know, he rocks up bringing cakes, biscuits, presents, tells stories and, you know, puts them on his knee and 
does all the grandfather things you'd expect. They they look forward to seeing him. They don't know the full extent of of what he does and how closely related that is to their father's world. But I imagine one day they will. Yeah, I'm not sure how how they will respond to that. Will they was it the word compartmentalize that information and just put it somewhere? Or will they take action on it? I feel like Sambeo can get very overloaded and stressed if he has too much information or too much stimulation about a particular topic. Nune is very much from the heart and is very interested and connected with her Papuan culture. So for her, I think it will be a quite emotional information to process and deal with. Ampa is still very young, so it's it's hard to say how she would process that information. My eldest is a teenager at the moment who thinks most adults are annoying and dumb and embarrassing. So I think Grandpa's definitely in that category. <laughs> I feel like you can only lead from example. I feel like if they can see that I think this is wrong and I'm doing something about it and I'm trying my best even though it may seem futile, to take a stand against the things that I think are wrong in this world and trying to change them, that hopefully they can see that as, I don't know, as as a way forward to process their feelings. That if you feel upset or angry about something, even something so close, you are not powerless, you... You have to use that passion and that feeling and that anger or that rage or whatever it is in a productive way and I just hope I set an example for them. We are survivors. We are witnesses too. This is Get Your Armies Off Our Bodies, the first season of Peace Pod, produced on unceded Aboriginal country on the continent known as Australia. Production credits and other links are on the episode webpage. This episode and the previous one are dedicated to our good friend Philip Karma. Philip was a leader of the nonviolent resistance campaigning for peace and freedom for West Papua. He died on November 1st, 2022. Vale Philip Karma. I'm Zelda and we're Wage Peace. Wishing you all a future of Earth Care, not Warfare. We want you to know about our hopes and our dreams. We carry a big hope together, a free West Pole. We have held on to this hope for many, 